Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have given me today away, driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech had two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of another was Zilhah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilhah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we ask God's blessing on the reading of His Word this morning. A question for us this morning that I think has been raised in large part by uh, news and events over recent months is, in what do we trust? It's interesting to see the sort of semi-controlled panic in the news about the spread of the coronavirus and the effect that it's having. We've um, experienced in Scotland now a, a great number of people who have been uh, diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, the, the, the infection at the heart of the coronavirus, and uh, a number of folks across the UK have died. Nothing like the numbers in Italy or Iran or uh, China, and yet there's a general sense of panic. And it reveals to us, I think, what we place our trust in as a society. And ultimately, it's in stability, and it's in comfort, but really, it's in life itself, and it's in our well-being 
more specifically still. As long as we are well and life is going in a direction that will sustain our wellness, then we seem actually to be okay with pretty much anything. And it's only when something like coronavirus pops up and people begin to get sick and there appears worse than ever to be uh, no way of stopping it, crossing boundaries all over the world, all of a sudden society begins to get quite jittery and panicky, and we realize that we've been putting all our trust in our health and our well-being. The interesting thing about that is the things that we worship as men and women are very often the things that we put our trust in. We worship ourselves as a species, as mankind. We've given up on the worship of God. We worship ourselves, and we trust in ourselves. And as soon as our bodies begin to break down and decay, we are shaken to the very core of who we are. We don't know what to do with life anymore. There was a, a, um, a little comedy show uh, that was on the telly a good number of years ago, and it was a sketch show. And as part of the sketch show, there was a character who um, he would be sitting at a drive-through coffee place, or he'd be chatting to friends, and would just, in the middle of conversation, would freeze with this rictus of terror on his face, just for a moment. And then all of a sudden, would snap back into the conversation. And when his friend said, are you okay? He said, yeah, I just remembered about death and then just carried on as if nothing else had happened. And that's what society does. There's this panic about our, our demise, our bodies breaking down. We're not coping with that as, uh, as a species because we worship ourselves, and all our trust is vested in me and what I am and how stable and strong I am. And as soon as that goes, I don't know what to do. And interestingly, in this passage, we have uh, a similar experience. We have talk of worship here. I love the fact that at the end of this passage, to Seth is born a son called Enosh, and at that time, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. I think this is a reference to the beginning of sort of organized worship of mankind, whereas before, everything had been done in a one-to-one -one sort of ad hoc, just as you come, you worship God, as we read in the passage. But after that, people begin to come together and organize themselves specifically to call call upon the name of the Lord, and I think we can't help but divorce, uh, see that this is not in any way divorced from the rise of sin, the rise of death and decay, and the feeling that people have that they need to call upon God, not just that they want to, they actually need Him, otherwise all will be lost. And so the question is for us as Christians, what do we worship? What do we place our trust in? What are we most confident in so that when everything else disintegrates, we know that we are still stable and held together at the core of who we are? Because for Christians, there is a hope that nobody else in the world has. The problem is, of course, that for many people, all people in the world, and in fact many Christians, helps if I turn this thing on, um, that our trust is ultimately, our worship is ultimately found uh, in ourselves. Okay, there we go. In verses 1 to 7, uh, we have the introduction to this passage. Now, just to pause for a brief moment and just call us to remember that Genesis is written by Moses 
to God's people after they've left Egypt, but before they enter into the land of Canaan. They're wandering in the wilderness at this point. They are somewhere on that decades-long journey. They haven't laid claim to the land that God has promised them, so they're sort of homeless, nomadic people wandering around, and they're wondering if they're ever going to see the things that God has promised them, or if Moses has actually led them on a wild goose chase, and all of this has been for nothing. They've left uh, the security, if not the comfort, of slavery in Egypt, and the guarantee of food and protection and so on. They've abandoned all of that, and it might have all been for nothing. And so Moses is telling them who they are, where they've come from, so they can look to the future and see where they're going. And as he tells this story, he begins to outline this issue of trust. Sin has entered the world, begun to corrupt and destroy absolutely everything that we touch, because it comes through us, uh, through, through men and through women. And now he comes to this issue of worship, of the thing that we place our greatest emphasis upon, our greatest trust upon. And at the beginning of the chapter, uh, Moses tells us that Adam and Eve uh, Adam knew Eve, which is a kind of wonderful little euphemism that's very characteristic of the Old Testament, and she conceived and bore uh, a son, Cain. And she says, when she has Cain, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, Cain sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for gotten. So, it's this idea that she has acquired this person. Let's not forget, this is the first human being ever to have been born at this point, and it must have been a slightly strange experience for Eve to have gone through as the first mother ever in the history of the world, and yet she goes through this experience, and she perhaps understandably in this joyous occasion really places a lot of the emphasis on herself. I have done this thing. The Lord has helped, but I have acquired this man, this tiny little person. And Eve is clearly thinking at this point of what God has said in, back in chapter 3 and verse 15, a seed of yours, a child of yours is going to come and put right all that you have put wrong in the first place. And I think it's clear for Eve to be looking at this thinking, this is it. I've done it. Great. The child is here, and now everything can be put right, and all will be well with the world. And Eve doesn't see the sort of arrogance of her position of saying, and I've done this. <laughs> I've done it. I fixed it. No problem. I've gotten a man just with the Lord's help. Everything is still about her. Sin has so turned Adam and Eve around, turned them inward, that all they can see is the whole world is all about them. God has helped, but it's really all about her. And then Eve uh, and Adam have another son, and that gives us uh, some insight into how much hope she had for Cain. She called Cain gotten, and she called her second son Abel, which means something like nothing, vapor, weakness. Now, that's kind of tragic if you're Abel. <laughs> You've come along, and your brother is this gotten victory. This is it. The solution has come, and Abel is sort of nothing over there go and call nothing in for his dinner. Abel doesn't matter. He's a sort of, it's the heir and the spare. He's the spare. He doesn't make any difference. Cain is here, and Eve is putting her trust in herself and her firstborn son to fix this problem that she has caused. God had said a child would come, and she's got one. So, the problem is over. Abel is sort of meaningless now, which is tragic. And what we find in the course of time is that Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. Now, this is after Eden. They're working in a sin-filled world, so they're working hard to produce these crops, and so it's a sacrifice for them. Now, just to pause, I don't mean sacrifice in what will come 
throughout the rest of the Old Testament, temple, altar, slaughtering animals on the altar, and, and so on. That's not what I mean by sacrifice. This is an offering given to God and not a sacrifice to pay for sin. That will come later. And yet, they sacrifice some of the things that they have given, and, and they, they feel the pinch of that, I'm sure. They give it over to God when it would have been far better for them and their children to have eaten it. And Cain, being a farmer, brings some of the crops from his fields to God, and Abel, being a shepherd, brings some of his flock. I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that these are lambs that he has brought, uh, because again, this is Moses speaking to the people of Egypt, uh, having just left Egypt. So, what have they just experienced? lambs being given as an offering to stand in place of them before God. And so, Moses reminds them, this is where all of it begins, right back at the beginning. This isn't something new that God has just cooked up. It's been this way from the start. And what's interesting is that there isn't really much said about the sacrifice, the, 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 the offering, sorry. There's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with what Cain offered. It's not that it was crops rather than a lamb, because he wasn't a shepherd. The problem we find is actually Cain's heart and Abel's heart. Nothing has brought the best offering, because he's brought it from the very best he has, because he loves God, and he, want, he has nothing in and of himself. He brings and he gives all he has, whereas Cain is gotten, the one who's going to fix all the problems. And he comes thinking that his gift will be the best in arrogance, and the Lord isn't as accepting as his gift, and his face falls and gives away the fact that he's really not very happy at all. What's interesting is that God sees that Cain's face has fallen and asks, why are you angry? God doesn't get angry. He asks Cain why he's downcast. Won't you do well? Won't your gift be accepted, essentially, if it is given in the right way? But if you, if you don't give it in the right way, then it won't be accepted, and you have to be careful, God says, because sin will be crouching at the door. And what He's talking about is the temptation that Cain is experiencing to place all of his expectations that God will find his offering acceptable on Cain. It's because I am the one giving the gift. That's why Cain thinks that God will accept his offering. And God says, you've got to be so careful. You're being tempted. That's not where the, 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 the significance of this offering lies. It's not in you because you're the firstborn. It's in the state of your heart, your desire to give to me of your very best because you love me like Abel loves me. Cain doesn't get that. Cain really, really struggles with this. It's not all about God, it's about Him, and it brings Him down a peg or two. And this will always be our problem when we put all our hopes in our own character, our own ability, our own stature and standing, whether it's in church or at work or in family or whatever else it might be. And we do that from time to time. In fact, sometimes we do it often. We try so hard to, to please God or to please our family, and when what we offer isn't accepted or isn't acceptable, what happens? We get angry and we lash out at people, or we get depressed, and we retreat into ourselves, because I must just not be worth anything as a person if you haven't accepted everything that I've brought to whatever relationship it may happen to be. Everything rests on me. It's not about me. It's not about you. 
In the end, what we find when Christ comes in the New Testament is the ultimate revealing of that. Jesus dies on the cross to clearly proclaim to the entire world that you, whoever you are, and however amazing or terrible you might think you are, you are not good enough in and of yourselves to please God, but He is, and you are loved enough for Him to sacrifice Himself on your behalf. Again, not because of your worthiness, simply because you're loved, and we struggle with that because we want to be worthy, but we're not, and we never will be. Abel gets it. Nothing gets it, because he's nothing. Cain can't, because Cain is everything. We put ourselves in this place of righteousness, and then we complain that we don't get what we want. And it's one of those things that I think is often helpful for us when life turns a little bit sour, a little bit bitter, to watch how we respond. It's one of those early warnings that indicates what our relationship with God is like. How did I react to that? Was I resentful? How dare this happen to me? How dare God let this happen to me? How dare you say that to me and offend me and, and whatever else it might be? Or is our immediate response to look at the state of our own heart? Was it good enough? Was that an acceptable gift? Did I really want to just bless that person to bless God because they mean so much to me as opposed to it being sort of all about me and, and me feeling good about the offering that I've given, the thing that I have done. Eve needs to fix the problem she has in her life. And when it all goes wrong, it's revealed how empty her solution is. In the end, it's not enough. God must fix the problem. It doesn't matter how great a son she thinks Cain is, and it's true for us. When we invest too much hope in our relationship, our own character, our job, or whatever it might be, these things are never perfect. Our relationships will never be perfect. Our family and our friends will never be perfect. They'll never satisfy. They'll never be good enough. The root of the problem is actually us. And so we have to see a little bit further. Do we trust in ourselves too much? Do we trust in our effort too much? Cain's offering is looked upon by God as lesser than his brothers again because the nature of Cain's heart, the depravity of Cain's heart, is then made clear because as soon as God rejects that offering, what does Cain do? Lures his brother out into a field and murders him. Cain, you know, Abel's done nothing. All he's done is brought this gift that was acceptable to God. Cain knows he can't do anything to God. He knows he can do something to Abel. And he does what we very often do when we come up against something that we can't deal with. We lash out at somebody that we can deal with. That's exactly what he does. Out of the abundance of Cain's heart, the mouth, or in this case his hands, speak and to cap it off like his mom and dad when the Lord comes to him and God says, what have you done? He says, what? What are you talking about? I don't know where Abel is. I'm not my brother's keeper. Just give me a break. The Lord reveals to Cain, I know exactly what you've done. His blood is crying out to me from the ground. I understand exactly what has just happened, and God curses Cain, really. And the nature of the curse lines up with the nature of the sin. You have killed your brother. His blood has soaked, his life, as it were, has soaked into the ground, and therefore the ground won't yield any more crops for you. Now, let's not forget, this is Cain's sole means of sustenance. This is his livelihood. He's a farmer, and a farmer who can't grow crops isn't much of a farmer anymore. His whole meaning for life has been taken away as a result of the sin that has borne fruit, as it were, because of the poor state of his heart. And we are often exactly the same. 
And that's not to say that when we sin in a certain way or a certain area of our lives that God will curse us and take something away. I'm, I'm not saying that. But very often what happens is that the fruit of the, the sin that's still, uh, that we still struggle with um, comes, to, comes to pass, and we find that the very thing that we have been focusing on in some way becomes corrupted and damaged because, in a sense, we've infected it um, with sin. The means of Cain's life is gone, and it's the same with us. The purpose, the drive, the focus, everything is made sort of nothing now. It's all gone as a result of sin. And he's told you're going to wonder now. You're going to wander in the land forever. In fact, we're told um, in the passage that he goes uh, and lives in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the land of Nod sounds kind of strange, like it's out of a child's story. But again, the whole idea is of the land of wandering. It's a sort of nowhere place. You're just going to wander and wander and wander forever. Now, remember who Moses is writing this to. He's writing this to Israel as they wander in the wilderness, and they're trying to figure out, are we ever going to get to the end of this, or is this it for the rest of eternity? Our people will just circle round and round and round in this desert, never receiving the promise that God has offered. And Moses is trying to help them understand that if they focus on themselves and their own effort, that is exactly what will happen. In fact, that's the whole reason they've been wandering in the wilderness for so long. The journey would have been over in months if God's people had stayed faithful to Him. But even in their wilderness wanderings, as God has led them miraculously with all the wealth of Egypt out towards the promised land, they still give themselves over to the worship of idols. They get Aaron to make them a god out of gold so they can all worship it. And as a result, God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness till all of that generation are dead and gone. And then a new generation that don't know your sinfulness will enter in and receive the promise. Moses is telling his people that that is the consequence of living by your sinful efforts. But if you live trusting in God as Abel did, giving freely from a generous heart because you love the Lord, then the wilderness wandering will end. You can enter into the land of promise. And the tragedy of this story about Cain's life is that Cain settles in the land of Nod. He lives forever in this place of never knowing a home. Now, what's interesting about this is that he does actually find a home, because we have this thing that I love about Genesis and the early books of the Bible, that it paints a picture of this birth of humanity as we know it. And you have places where countries like Egypt, why they're named Egypt, or why they, um, these lands over here are named that way, or this particular profession is named that way. It's because of these early characters in the Bible. And here, at the end of chapter 4, we have this little snapshot of the birth of civilization, if I can put it that way. We find that Cain knows his wife, and she has a son, uh, Enoch, and they have children. And these children are the most perfect children that you could ever hope for as a parent, up to a point. They invent music. They invent metalworking, bronzeworking, ironworking. This is the, the, the sort of crowning moment, as it were, of mankind up to this point. As civilization is born, they settle in a city. They establish the first ever proper city. And we might think, therefore, that Cain's life isn't all that bad after all. He gives birth to civilization. And yet, what Scripture says about that is nothing but contemptuous. 
For all of the great success of his children, what happens is Lamech comes along as the, the sort of the next in line to this great dynasty that brings all of these great blessings to mankind and says, this kid wounded me, so I just murdered him. And he's boasting about it. He seems to think this isn't just a thing that happened. It's actually quite a good thing. And if Cain did this, and God said, I'll make sure you're protected, that no one can kill you for doing these things, then surely God will protect me 70 times more than that, because I'm further down the line than Cain. I'm better than he was. And it just gives you a snapshot of how wicked mankind has become in the space of just a few short generations. We've gone from someone who knows that murder is bad to someone who is glorying in murder at this point, at the pinnacle of civilized mankind. We find God's people, the seed, as it were, doesn't rest in Cain's line. All that comes for all of the glory that they might heap upon themselves is more sin, is more misery. Cain's work is revealed to be empty. It's of no real value or purpose because his heart wasn't right and it led him to wander away from God. And while he was wandering away from God, everything he did only led to greater problems. There's nothing inherently wrong with technology or with cities. The whole Bible ends not in the Garden of Eden, but in a glorious city where we will all live with God. God is not saying that cities are bad or technology is bad, but God is saying that when you have these great and glorious things for mankind's good, but your heart is wandering away from God, nothing good comes from them. Now, to be slightly provocative, I could say the crowning example of that is something like Facebook or Twitter or pick an online kind of place where people can express their own opinions, whatever lies in their hearts. These places are appalling. They're truly dreadful places, and they're good as a means of communication and sharing photos with your family. I get that. But how much harm and damage is done by the online sphere of humanity, where you're anonymous and you can write literally anything you want, safe in the knowledge that nobody will know that it's you that said it. Great blessing on mankind, but it brings nothing but misery to so many people. As we look at someone else's life and think, I wish I had as good a life as they did. And they don't have as good a life as that. They only present the good stuff. Nobody's posting a picture on Facebook of them at half past five in the morning, having just been woken up by the kids, hair all over the place, face that looks like someone's trodden on it, feeling like they've slept the night in a bush outside. Nobody posts that picture on Facebook. You, you present the best. But what does it bring? It brings kind of sadness and misery to other people <laughs> because they wish they had as perfect a life as you. And it's the same when it comes to our salvation. If something in our life doesn't point in some way to God's glory, yes, it can be used by God for some good, but from our perspective, it becomes empty or meaningless or worse. It becomes a carrier for even greater amounts of sin. We cannot bring true contentment or happiness or, or meaning to life through the things that we do apart from God, because while we wander away from Him, it just brings destruction. A great example of this is the community fridge. There are loads of places in this country where people give food away to those who desperately need it. But our community fridge is not simply about distributing food to people who have need. 
Our community fridge is about glorifying God by serving men and women created in His image so that we might communicate something of what we believe about them and their value and their purpose and their direction and their standing before God. That is why we do the community fridge. And we also happen to give away free food. Ultimately, it comes down to whether we trust in our God. The passage closes the last couple of verses, and we hear that Adam and Eve have another son, and interestingly, he doesn't replace for the, the child that we might think. Eve calls him a replacement uh, for Abel, who killed Cain. But actually, he comes as a replacement for Cain. We find that it's through Seth that the line, the seed, will come from. Uh, I will, will, will come from his line. And we notice as well that even though Eve doesn't quite get it, she also underscores a difference in her own heart. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. It's not all about Eve anymore. Eve is all about God now. She sees that it's not all about her provision because she's seen what happens when she brings up a son and tells him he's the most amazing thing that's ever happened since mankind first began. He ends as a murderer. And so Seth comes and gives birth to Enosh, and the worship of God truly begins, and he is the means by which God will bring salvation into the world. And the chapter starts with this despairing note, but ends with this note of triumph. Because of the birth of this son, I think Moses is tying these two things together, people begin to worship God. Everything begins to change. It's not just Eve's heart that's changed. The heart of mankind begins to change because of God's plans and His purposes being worked out. When I began writing this, the one thing I didn't want to do was sit down and, and write something, share something with you which said, don't put trust in man or your own effort. Trust in God and leave it there, because we all know that. We know that's what we're supposed to do. The issue is that we don't think. We get on with life, and busyness takes over, and when we look back, we realize we've been trusting in our own cleverness, our own strength, our own uh, learning, or whatever it might be. We've been relying on our own family, our own health, whatever it is. We've been worshiping these things, and when they fail or are taken away, we find ourselves bereft and empty. The issue is that our lives don't tend to be defined by purposefully focusing everything on God routinely, so that becomes our habit. When we talk about things like being holy, it's an opportunity for us to reflect. When we sing songs about that or when we pray about God, it gives us a chance to reflect on how imperfect we are, not to beat ourselves up, but to reveal how much we need God so that we turn to Him, we flee to Him, we run to Him because I'm not enough and I'm never going to be enough, but you are. That's when we see how dirty we are and we're driven to the seed of the woman, to Christ who comes that He might forgive us, cleanse us, and set us right, because there's no other way to live this life. So, what do you worship? In whom do you trust? You worship yourself, your family, your work, your health. What you worship, you place your trust on. Is that trust well-founded? Will that thing ever let you down? Can it ever be taken away? If it can be, if it does, it's not good enough. If you worship God and place your trust in Him, no matter what happens, when all those other things fail, God will still stand as the one that made you, the one that loved you, the one that saved you, not just for a wee while, but for all eternity with Him in perfect glory. Focusing on Him in everything will not only bring glory to Him, which it will, but it will also bring joy to you in all circumstances. 
Worship him. Trust in him. He will never fail you. He will never let you down or let you go. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are our rock. You are the one in whom we can trust. And Lord God, we confess before you this morning very often that we worship a great many other things. We place our trust in a great many other things, good things perhaps, things given to you, by by you to us for our blessing. And yet, Lord, we realize that we have made them the grounds of our worship and not the one who gives the gift. So, Lord, we confess that and we ask that you would take your right place in our hearts, that we would truly worship you in all things, that we would do all things for your glory, that we would be conscious always of our needs to focus on you in every facet of life so that, Lord, we might glorify you, but also enjoy you, that we might worship you, but also lean upon you, so that when all those other blessings are taken away, as they surely will be if we live long enough in this life, Lord, we will never be lost. We will never be empty. We will never be bereft and without hope, for we will have you, and we need none other. Lord God, we ask this for ourselves here this morning, for our brothers and sisters on either side and front and behind, and for all those who are not with us, who are absent from our presence in this place. For Lord God, this is who we are as a people, and this is how we flourish in this life. Lord God, have us worship you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.